Welcome to Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's stories. Chinese scientists have developed an AI prosecutor that could theoretically develop and even press charges. Litigation financing via cryptocurrency offerings. One firm thinks it's the future and an update on the legal developments surrounding the Surfside condo collapse from South Florida over the summer. All of that and more. Here's what you need to know. South China Morning Post, a widely read Chinese newspaper that is also published in English as well, reported just before the new year that Chinese researchers had developed a, quote, AI prosecutor that can reportedly identify crimes and press charges with 97% accuracy, according to the Post. Apparently, the AI was fed data on 17,000 criminal cases from 2015 through 2020 and can identify with accuracy certain crimes like gambling, reckless driving, theft, and fraud, and then can recommend sentences for them. It is currently in the midst of a pilot program that's being run in Shanghai. Researchers say the technology can be used to reduce prosecutors' daily workload, allowing them to focus on more difficult cases, according to Professor Shi Yong, director of the Chinese Academy of Sciences Big Data and Knowledge Laboratory. Apparently, this technology builds on existing protocols and technology that's already in use in China, including an AI tool called System 206, which analyzes the strength of evidence and the likelihood of potential future crimes. According to Professor Yang, existing AI tools, quote, do not participate in the decision-making process of filing charges and suggesting sentences, unquote. Presumably what sets the new AI technology apart is that it would participate in the decision-making process. It's not quite clear from the report. Now, from the article in the South China Morning Post, I'm actually not sure if the AI is literally filing charges itself or if it is recommending charges to a human prosecutor who then can simply submit the recommended filings from the AI. I don't know if there's a human intermediary or if the prosecutor is literally just a computer program here. A prosecutor in Guangzhou was quoted in the piece as being skeptical, saying, quote, the accuracy of 97% may be high from a technological point of view, but there will always be chance of mistake, unquote, said the prosecutor who wished to remain anonymous. He said, quote, who will take responsibility when it happens, the prosecutor, the machine, or the designer of the algorithm, unquote. And I've seen that same question being asked for self-driving cars here in the United States, actually. So all this sounds kind of minority reporting, right? What's interesting is that when looking into this while writing for the week's show, I found that many criminal systems in the United States utilize similar programs, although on a much lesser degree. And forgive me if this isn't news to any of you criminal lawyers out there. I'm merely a civil litigator. Uh, I knew generally of the existence of actuaries, like the public safety assessment, which I guess is a statistical model that can predict things like failure to appear for a pretrial, potential future arrest, things like that based on social modeling. And the PSA is used by judges all over the country, in fact. However, I did not know about Compass, which is an algorithm that seeks to assess a criminal defendant's likelihood of becoming a recidivist, i.e. a re-offender. From a ProPublica report in 2016, it found that Compass, which stands for Correctional Officer Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions, when addressing black defendants, quote, were far more likely than white defendants to be incorrectly judged at a higher risk of recidivism, while white defendants were more likely than black defendants to be incorrectly flagged low risk, unquote. 
Regarding the accuracy of Compass, quote, in forecasting who would correctly reoffend, the algorithm correctly predicted recidivism for black and white defendants at roughly the same rate, 59% for white defendants and 63% for black defendants, but made mistakes in very different ways, unquote. This story is really great because I don't know, it's kind of easier to accept, at least for me, that places like China may be outsourcing key elements of their justice system to computers. And that's why this story grabbed a ton of headlines over the past two weeks here in the United States. But, and I'm no expert, but when you look into it further, things like the Compass program and PSA that exist in the United States are not that dissimilar in design, even though we have not automated the role of prosecutor the way that China seems to be experimenting with. Nonetheless, the differences seem to be in degree, not in kind. Both countries likely are looking at a backlog of criminal cases and thinking, how can we use our amazing technological advances to automate at least some part of this process? And I guess who can blame them? We hear stories all the time of clogged courts and congested criminal dockets. Still, it does at least register on my personal future dystopia detector as a verity minority report S type of step towards an automated criminal justice system. If anyone has an experience with Compass or PSA, feel free to reach out and let us know in the comments. I'd be interested in hearing from you. Next, a story out of Vice called Tech Startup Wants to Gamify Suing People Using Crypto Tokens. Okay. So the company is called Rival, R-Y-V-A-L, and according to founder and lawyer Kyle Roche, its goal is to, quote, make access to justice more affordable. What I want to do is make the federal court system more accessible for all, unquote. So far, this is the same usual rhetoric that we get from just about every other litigation finance company or case loan company. Take a look back at episode one from December 21st for my version of litigation finance 101 if you're interested. But here's where Rival gets interesting. From the Vice piece, quote, what we do is tell the story, vet the legal claim, and then allow the public to invest and give you the funds to go and litigate your case. And what does the public get in return? The public gets an interest in the outcome of your suit, unquote. According to Kyle Roche, this process will be called an initial litigation offering, or ILO, and that all investors, regardless of accreditation status, will be able to buy cryptocurrency, uh, coins that are minted that represent an interest in the case, and then trade those coins on an open market. Roche says that this product will allow for liquidity in a market that did not previously exist. If coin holders think that the case is heading south, for example, the coin holder can sell the coin. The value of the coin will fluctuate depending on the market, which presumably will be based on the market assessment of where the case is going. So there is a test case currently pending. Apotheo LLC, which is an Indiana-based marijuana farm, raised about 320000 on its ILO. In that case, the sheriff in Kern County, California, allegedly unlawfully destroyed about 500 acres of a crop field, which I think was marijuana, according to the suit. The destruction of that crop was catastrophic to their business, Roche says, who also represents Apotheo LLC in this case. The Apotheo ILO is still ongoing, actually, and you can still invest if you wanted to. I checked out the offerings website because I still really don't get how this makes sense yet. But here's what I found. 
So you can buy coins for one US dollar each with a minimum $100 investment. You get 80% of your funds back in the, in the event that the case is dismissed. And in this case, remember, you're going to be funding the plaintiff. Then the value of your coin goes up based on a timeline set by the ICO company. If the case survives motions to dismiss, the coin goes up to, I think, 200%. And then based on other benchmarks to 300 and 350%, et cetera. And that money presumably comes out of the total recovery to the plaintiff. It should be noted that the plaintiff is suing for over $100 million here, so there is a big pot. And basically what you are buying is almost like a stock where you get based on the settlement. Okay, sure, I get that. Um, it's a clever idea, really, and I could see the way the market would probably draw a lot of investor interest. I'd certainly like to have a piece of some of the verdicts and judgments I read about in the jury verdict reporter, for example. The fact that this is open to anyone to invest is interesting. Like, sure, as a lawyer, I could theoretically pull up Pacer and eyeball a docket and read the pleadings and press releases and figure out whether the case is any good or not. But do regular investors have that level of sophistication? Probably not. And here's what's interesting and why I think this is potentially game-changing. Say you're the best patent litigator in the country, but you have no clients. You'd have no income then. Except now you can put those skills and that knowledge to use investing in the outcomes of cases that you can apply your expertise to and evaluate and essentially underwrite the way that a, in the way that a stock picker would. You could potentially imagine entire investment firms of former litigators who do nothing else but place bets on lawsuits. It's crazy to think about, really. And look, I'm not like a crypto guy, but industry people would be wise to keep an eye on this trend as it develops because I think one way or the other, crypto and NFTs and all the liquidity that those concepts bring to markets are here to stay. Sooner or later, it will be applied to the litigation sector. I'm sure you all remember the condo building that collapsed in June in Miami. The collapse resulted in the deaths of 98 people, injury to many more. The building itself was totally demolished afterwards. Uh, the litigation surrounding that case is currently set for trial in March of 2023. Quick background on the allegations, according to the Miami Herald. The lawsuit contends that excavation, pile driving, and other work at 87 Park, which is an adjacent building just across the city line in Miami Beach between 2016 and 2019, caused vibrations that I guess weakened the foundation and supports of the condo building that collapsed. In addition, groundwater was funneled from the new building into the collapsed tower's basement after the developers bought a small road separating the two, the lawsuit says. Defendants have denied that the construction of the adjacent building was responsible for the collapse, and they contend that the collapsed building was improperly designed, constructed, underfunded, and inadequately maintained. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the facts of the case. I mostly just want to remind everyone that Florida just suffered one of the largest building collapse-related casualty events ever in June of 2021. And a couple of things to update everyone on. Uh, first, a recent grand jury report published in December of 2021 offered a number of suggestions and criticisms to the current state of things in South Florida. According to a statement from South, according to a statement from State Attorney Catherine Fernandez Rundle, quote, the grand jury came to a strong conclusion, save lives, not money. 
The deaths of 98 people are too high a price to pay to learn four very serious lessons. One, that the statute overseeing condominiums, the Florida Condominium Act, desperately needs serious revision. Two, that state and local governments need to focus more attention on preventing Florida's 1.5 million condominium units from structural deterioration that may endanger lives. Three, that Florida's condominium boards recognize very serious responsibilities they have in preserving structural life of their buildings and the lives of their individual residents. And four, Florida Department of Business and Regulation should be seriously restructured so that it may finally play a seriously constructive role in overseeing condominium governance, unquote. So from the state attorney's perspective, Florida needs to tighten up its regulatory control to avoid similar tragedy in the future. Next, on the civil litigation side of this tragedy, from the Miami Herald in an article titled, United in Grief, Bitter Legal Battles Now Divide Surfside Collapse Survivors and Families, the article talks about how the victims of the collapse have been pitted against each other by virtue of the claims process. And one important detail to note here is that there is reportedly only about $170 million total available to pay the related claims, which, if true, it is you all probably will figure out is not nearly enough to cover 98 wrongful death claims as well as the property claims associated with the demolition of the building. The 170 million includes 50 million or so in insurance plus the sale of the 2 acre oceanfront property for about 120 million. Important to note that though only a portion of the building collapsed, the entire building had to be demolished, so all 136 unit owners probably have a claim for the lost value of their property. So 136 property claims along with the 98 wrongful death claims all fighting over a pot that is only $170 million. You can see how this would get ugly, and according to the Herald, that's exactly where this is going. Quote, anger infuses the unanswered questions of the disaster's victims who are trying to reconstruct interrupted lives and heal broken families. Who should get what from the sale of the land, insurance coverage, and class action lawsuit? Who is at fault for the design and construction defects that led to the collapse or delays of, of the building's renovation project? How much will those found to be negligent have to pay? The division that cuts deepest is this one. A small group of relatives of the dead insist that surviving condo owners deserve nothing and should be held liable for damages because of their failure to maintain the building's safety, unquote. One resident and, importantly, member of the condo board was quoted in the piece. Her name was Rhea Rodriguez. Quote, I lost everything. I'm homeless. We feel compassion for the family members who lost loved ones. We are not greedy. We want to be compensated for our property. But some of the relatives suing for wrongful death want to take every penny from us and blame us too, unquote. There are a myriad of claims pending from the more relatively simple claims for the lost economic value that owners are claiming for the destruction of their condo units to, of course, the wrongful death actions. The condo board, which is comprised of condo residents, is named as a defendant. Many of the board members, like Rodriguez, are claimants on the property actions. You can see how the financial realities of these competing claims can pit the victims against each other. In response to Rodriguez's comments, surviving father Pablo Langsfield, whose 26-year-old daughter Nicole died in the collapse, said, quote, homeless, I wish we had that problem. Nicole's home is six feet underground forever. For me, there is nothing to negotiate, nothing to compromise on. 
All money should go to the relatives of the innocent victims. Apartments and material things are replaceable. Life is irreplaceable, unquote. So on that note, how are Florida legislators responding to this call for action? Well, some are actually working to limit the recovery of Floridians in construction defect cases. The bill SB 736 that is currently winding its way through the legislative process would take the current statute of limitations for construction defect claims from its current state of 10 years to five years for single family homes, buildings under four stories tall and other small residential buildings. It would not, to be clear, change the statute of limitations for large commercial residential buildings like the condo building that collapsed, but it would limit the recovery period for duplexes, certain apartment constructions, etc. Proposed by Northeast Florida Senator Travis Hudson, he said his goal is to make the process of resolving construction complaints easier, reducing the need for litigation, and keeping insurance rates for builders and developers from rising due to claims. Speaking on behalf of the Florida Home Builders Association, attorney Carrie Herbrink told committee members, quote, one of the biggest problems that the industry is now facing is that subcontractors cannot afford the rising costs of liability insurance as a result of construction defect claims, unquote. And look, I know the cost of insurance is high for construction businesses, especially small businesses, but Florida seems to be moving towards protecting home builders, which isn't inherently bad, of course. But considering the timing of it all, it's just a weird lesson to learn, especially in light of recent events. Thanks, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the show. Let us know what you think so far. We really mean it. We want to know what you like or dislike about the show. Let us know if you think there's something we should be covering that we're not. We do our best to keep our ear to the ground, but obviously keeping up with our day jobs mean we miss some things. Remember, you can find us everywhere now, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, etc. Drop a rating or review on those platforms to help us beat the algorithm and show up in search results. Otherwise, we'll see you next week.